0: The entire world is a very narrow bridge. The world, all of life, is a narrow bridge, on either side of which is a gaping, terrifying abyss. Someone who does not live this experience cannot understand it. One needs to traverse the bridge, and it is clear from an objective perspective that he is capable of doing so. This is why... The main thing, ha'ikar, is not to fear at all. Your greatest enemy is not outside of you, but rather inside of you. It is fear itself. I'm Rabbi Jeffrey Sachs, editor of Tradition. And that was a quote from Professor Sholem Rosenberg's essay, A Narrow Bridge, Rabbi Nachman of Breslov's Faith in a World of Doubt, adapted from his posthumous Hebrew volume, Gesher Tsar, and appearing in Tradition's Recent Fall Issue, available open access at traditiononline.org. Shalom Rosenberg was a distinguished professor of philosophy and Jewish thought at the Hebrew University, at Herzog College, and elsewhere, and a widely regarded public intellectual. He passed away in Jerusalem last March. Of course, this essay was written, translated, and sent to press before our current traumatic moment, our Eit Tzara Li what some see as a moment of Hester Panim, God's inscrutable hiddenness, and others see as Gilui Panim, in which we sense his guiding presence through the fog of war. But all would agree, it's a time in which we must find faith in a world of tragic doubt. Because Rosenberg's essay presents itself to us with such unexpected timeliness, we thought it would be instructive dis- to discuss it with Rabbi Dr. Tzvi Leshem, himself a student of Rosenberg and of Rabbi Nachman of Breslov. Tzvi is the director of the Gershom Shalom collection for Kabbalah and Hasidism at the National Library of Israel. And he's no stranger to readers of tradition who can find his contributions to our pages in our archives. So, welcome Tzvi. And before we talk a bit about who Sholem Rosenberg was and how the essay is such a, a a rich read during this terrible, traumatic time in Israel and indeed around the Jewish world, why don't you just lead us through the essay itself? What is Shalom Rosenberg doing in this recent essay?
1: Okay. Well, thank you, Rabbi Sachs, for inviting me for this uh, discussion. Uh, as a student of Professor Rosenberg, uh, and as someone living this moment together with everyone else uh, in Israel and abroad, uh, I am uh, going back to this article and finding it very, very rich and very uh, appropriate for for the experience that we're all in right now. Um, the article, which uh, was written uh, who knows when, but you know, certainly before we where we are now, uh, I think, first of all, uh, is very much Professor Sean Mosenberg letting us have a window into his own world of faith and sharing with us uh, very openly some of his own uh, thoughts and uh, questions and answers that he's been working out over m- his many years. And um, he talks about a number of important issues. First of all, uh, the danger of falling into a- anthropomorphism when we use religious language uh, about God uh, too lightly, which is uh, an idea that appears not only in Rabbi Nachman, but also in Mea Shiloh, in a different context. Um, and another topic that I think is central to the essay, which was very important for me, was the idea of faith being an ongoing process. That faith is a, a lifelong process that one engages in in very much the same way as he mentions later, Rabbi Nachman's con- uh, uh, interesting take on tshuva, that you have to do chuva al ha chuva to be in a constant state of um, of repentance because the the more we grow spiritually we realize that retroactively the where where we were holding previously is no longer relevant so the same thing is true about faith not just about uh about chuva so that this is a is a kind of a lifelong path that we need to all be on so that's a second point that's very important uh, I just want to mention, in general, since Rabbi Nachman is a, sort of the topic theoretically of the article that uh, he uses. Uh, and I won't go into it now, but very uh, interesting range of sources from the Brussels Corpus in a very creative way. That's mm-hmm. that I found very uh, very fascinating. Uh, I think the central point, maybe, of the article, or certainly one of them, is what he when he talks about faith wagers, and here he mentions first of all, obviously, the famous. Uh, uh, Pascal, uh, who, you know, the, the way that it's uh, it's a good bet to bet uh, that, that God exists, because the consequences are worse if you're wrong, if you think he, if you're an atheist, and then he brings up a much less well-known source, which is very important for us as uh, as Jewish uh, philosophers of Rabbi um, Yehuda Arya Medona, who was before Pascal and had a fairly similar approach. So that, obviously, for us is very, very uh, significant. And he talks about those two and then he gives his own approach and he gives what he calls a triple bet um, and, and here also in his language you see rosenberg who can be the you know the ultimate philosopher but also speak in a really really kind of down-to-earth, down-to-earth yeah. terminology and um and he first i'll say it now you know i think he says it afterwards that their bet was really more about olam haba what's going to happen when you get to the pearly gates if you made the wrong wager and his triple bet is really much more about how we live in this world. In this world, And he gives the three aspects, what he calls the cognitive or conceptual, which is faith itself, to decide to believe in God. And he does say earlier that faith is really a decision that a modern or postmodern person has to make. The second is the practical, which involves halacha, shmurat mitzvot, ethics, etc. And the third he calls emotional, which is essentially hope for a better world and the belief in redemption. So it's kind of a uh, pa- play on words of some aspects of the Rambam's uh, Ikarim, which he says in the article also have to be reinterpreted uh, at all times. So that's also a fascinating uh, triple yeah. thing it, that maybe
0: we'll come back yeah. to later. Interestingly, even the third the third gamble uh, to gamble on on optimism on hope uh, hope for redemption you know something we're all in, in need of uh, at the moment. Um, it's not as eschatological as it sounds. It's how that how living a life of hope transforms our experience in the here and now, and that's a very uh, that that you know he's picking up off of off of breast love. But I think that's a, an important point to make because that's not the way the term is usually is usually understood and interpreted.
1: I think it's, it's also Ruff Cook, who comes up a lot in the essay as well. Mm-hmm. And I think it's very, very re- relevant to the situation we're in now that we'll talk about later. But uh, I think the people now that have uh, emunah and are able to have faith are, are able to have rays of hope in this. In right. At least at certain points, it's felt like a very, very hopeless, in some ways, a very hopeless situation. Right. So it's a very significant. Now,
0: at a certain point in the essay, he, he brings in another thinker, uh, a thinker who himself would have probably... Been either amused or annoyed uh, to be marshaled alongside Rabbi Nachman of all people, and that, of course, is Professor Yishaiah Leibowitz. So, so say a word about what he's doing with Leibowitz in the in the piece.
1: So Leibowitz is interesting here, and uh, and I'll just say that I once uh, have have thought in the past that there are some of sources that seem to paint uh, Shmuel Mitzvot as kind of a theater of the absurd. Uh, that we're acting in, so there may be more of a connection than people usually think, but that mm-hmm. requires a, a lot more investigation. I would
0: like for you to write that essay for Traditions. We'll put a little marker in that, uh, to come back to it. Okay. Uh,
1: Bluenetter. Um, Leibowitz has brought here, first of all, is uh, a summary of his major philosophical contribution, in the sense which is uh, is the idea that all uh, Shmirat Mitzvot is essentially an act of obedience that we shouldn't really look for what we would call meaning through our religious life. Our religious life is basically one in which uh, we are face-to-face with God, who is a commander. God has commanded us tariag mitzvot and and everything that goes with that. And our uh, life is about uh, obedience and and fulfilling our obligations. And we should have no further expectations than that. We shouldn't be looking for meaning. We shouldn't be looking for rewards. Certainly, yeah. all those things border on, uh, on a Vodazara of idolatry. Um, so, while well, that is, a, I think, for most people, uh, a big turnoff. Uh, Rosenberg kind of, um, and he obviously knew Leibovitz very well, he, not just his books, but the person. And he sees it as actually kind of, has a, he has a redemptive uh, way of looking at it, that the beauty in this approach is that really one is serving Hashem totally lishma. But it's really a kind of, of complete bitul, which is a, is a Hasidic concept. And, uh, and that he views it as not like someone who, for example, in his mashal, in Rosenberg's Mashal, not someone who brings his wife a broom for a present with the subconscious or conscious expectation that she'll also clean the house more, but someone who brings his wife a bouquet of flowers, which is a an object which only brings beauty and expresses love. And, and Rosenberg uh, presents Leibovitz as someone who's offering up his mitzvah to Hashem as a labor of love and uh, and a kind of a bouquet. And the other end, he doesn't hesitate to call out the shortcomings of that and the need for the average person, the average servant of Hashem, to also feel that there is someone listening to the prayers, someone who cares about them, someone who is responding, someone with which they have a relationship which gives meaning uh in, in their spiritual life.
0: He he very wittily quotes a comment of some some woman, which may or may not be apocryphal, who who says. Hu, please God, Tatezise, God in heaven. I pray to you not to listen to Leibovitz, who claims that you are not the Kupat Cholim, you're not the health clinic. Uh, because in fact, our lived lives, you know, particularly in difficult days such as this, we turn to God in prayer in the hope that He well, He will deliver the goods. And Leibovitz yeah. saw that as, of course, idolatrous, but uh, but that's not yes. how most people, and I'm not just talking about Hoy Palloy, I'm talking about even uh, learned, engaged, uh, devout people, um, you know, do do experience and express their faith in that way.
1: I'd like to mention one other point, which is near the end of the essay. So, to end this part of the discussion, that he does uh, spend a fair amount of time on, uh, on two Franzes, Franz Rosenzweig and Franz Kafka. And I'd rather say something about the latter he uh, mentions two heroes of Kafka's or anti-heroes of Kafka's writings, one being K, who is Kafka himself in the trial and other writings. And the and the, that's the person who is constantly searching for something, searching for meaning, perhaps, searching for uh, entrance, the, enter the law, whatever, the person who's endlessly uh, alienated and frustrated and unsuccessful in their quest, but nonetheless continues to constantly seek some sort of meaning or some sort of understanding of what is going on in their life as a kind of, and he sees that also as a faith quest. The second person that he uh, points to in Kafka's characters is Gregor Samsa from Metamorphosis, the person who unfortunately wakes up one morning to find uh reborn as a, uh, awoken as a giant bug, mm-hmm. and with all of the uh, horror that, and the alienation and the abuse that comes along with that, and that's I was the person uh, the other side of Kafka, perhaps the other side of the of the Jew in exile who uh, is living in a in a different kind of horror situation of complete uh, depersonalization and and uh, abuse. And that's the more pessimistic, the really pessimistic side of Kafka that that the person seeking faith has to overcome as well,
0: right. well i'm I'm glad you mentioned uh, his his use of of Kafka here because it's so. It's so uh, typical of Rosenberg's writing. Rosenberg was a, a, a serious uh, academic philosopher of the of the highest order, but in his writing, he he draws on a wide range of of sources, from from high culture to to pop culture. I was uh, responsible and involved in the publication in English of his Hebrew volume *Ikvot which appeared as is two volumes in English as In the Footsteps of the Kuzari, which is not exactly, it's in no way a commentary on that medieval work by Mm -hmm. Yehuda Levi. It's kind of using the model of the Kuzari to engage with essential topics in in Jewish thought. I think it's a very important book. And unfortunately, like much of Rosenberg, the man and his work has not yet been sufficiently uh, consumed and appreciated uh, in the United States or amongst English readers. And, And we hope we'll make an effort to change that. But in, in this essay, in exploring this question of faith, so he draws on such a wide range. In a short little essay, there's a dozen pages. If I've catalogued it correctly, well, you know, of course, there's Tanakh and Chazal alongside the central texts of 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 Breslov Hasidism. This figure of Yehudarieh of Modena, Rav Kook, of course, who I think probably makes an appearance in in almost every one of, uh, one of Rosenberg's uh, works. And then... Listen to this list: the the British philosopher John Wisdom, Emil Fackenheim, Paul Tillich, Franz Rosenzweig, Blaise Pascal, Shia Leibovitz, Kant, Oscar Wilde, Achada Am, Kafka, and of course that great Jewish philosopher Woody Allen. I mean, it's it's just it's 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 astounding the array of sources that he draws on, in, not in a kitschy way this is not some kind of uh, you know t- telegraphing to the reader that he's he's with it or that he's seen a movie or things like that. He's he marshals all of the sources high to low, high to pop in, in a way that really deepens and greases the wheels of of his presentation so that it can be communicated. So so this was something you know this says something about the man himself. So why don't you tell us a little bit? A little bit about mm-hmm. Charles Rosenberg, uh, the man. So, the-
1: so Rosenberg, as just to, to continue with starting with what you said, was a very very wide ranging scholar in both his classes and in his writing, was familiar with the you know very wide corpus of Jewish and non Jewish sources of all sorts, and from high culture to popular culture, and was able to bring a really wide range of uh, of different thinkers and different sources together in a way which was very unusual and very, but also very serious and very in depth. Uh, Sholem Rosenberg was born in uh, Argentina and grew up there. He became, uh, in South America, a student of the very recently more famous Mar Shoshani, the sort of mysterious teacher of others such as Levinas and Elie Wiesel and others after the war in France who spent his last years in Uruguay. Uh, where Shalom Ozenberg became close with him, and he ended up uh, here in Israel doing a PhD at Hebrew University and become a full professor of uh, Jewish philosophy at Hebrew University, while at the same time teaching in a number of other institutions simultaneously. There was a period where he was teaching in, I think, four different institutions, one each day. He taught mm-hmm. at Hebrew U, he taught at uh, Toro College, where I had him as my master's thesis advisor, he taught at Herzog for many years, and he taught also in Beit Shah when that was mm-hmm. uh, active. So here's a person who's a full professor who probably only really needs to teach uh, two classes a week and spend the rest of the time writing, and he loved to teach, and he loved to share Torah, and um, I heard once that Rav Amital Zatzal referred to him as the Dubno Magid of our generation or something like that, <laughs> a person who has a flair for giving over Torah in a way that's accessible to a wide range of uh, of people. And he also wrote a very wide range of books as well. You've mentioned Bikvota Kuzari. Uh, a book which is very relevant to uh, the current situation is, is his book, Tova Rabbah uh, Gura Yehudit, which was translated into English Good and Evil in uh, Jewish uh, Thought, where he begins from the Tanakh, from Eov uh, from, uh, primarily, and works his way all the way to post Holocaust theology, discussing all the different constructs and systems for making sense of theodicy and why evil exists and why good people suffer. And it's a really basic uh, work also also for scholars. And also there are people that I've known who've gone through difficult things who are not particularly connected to Jewish sources. And I've given them that book and they've found it really helpful uh, to them as well. Um, He loved to teach, as I said, he was an interesting teacher. His classes uh, on the surface appear to be often disorganized. He went off on many tangents. He once described these tangents as as uh, as taking a going off going on a hike and stopping to smell the flowers on the side of the trail um, But if you listened carefully and if you stuck with him then you would see that he would come back at the end and yes put things together and he actually uh, early in his academic career was studied mathematics and he was a very clear thinker in a way and he would often uh, on the board write out very, complicated philosophical ideas and kind of simple charts that were very, very helpful because he did have a way of, even though he was in the upper spheres of theoretical ideas, of bringing them down to earth in a very, very, uh, very simple and straightforward manner. That was was his greatness, I think, as a pedagogue. He loved... The academic world and he also loved the yeshiva world and he loved teaching uh in these less rigorous academic or more more yeshivish kind of settings as well and he was very at home there as well he lived in givacha wool street in the center of a very haredi neighborhood and he really uh fit was able to move very smoothly uh in both in both worlds um as i said before he was my master's thesis advisor he was the one who encouraged me to focus on the PSH no rebbe which certainly in my personal scholarly life was a tremendous, tremendous uh, um, choice that was made and set me on my uh, academic uh, path. I was already involved in Pia and before then. It was something I was considering, but he was the one who really sat me down and said, this is what you need to do. So that was great for me. Um, just one really quick personal story that once at Herzog, which is an alone shavut, I needed to, he tended to go over in his classes often over the last few minutes not end with the bell. And I really needed to leave and drive to Jerusalem to teach. And I left early and I thought he was annoyed with me. And I, this is before there was even email, I wrote him a letter uh, explaining that I had to leave and uh, that I, I was upset that he seemed to be upset with me. And he wrote back and said, chas Shalom, you shouldn't think that. I'm, I was really supportive. I said, you should go really meaning it. And you should also merit of students that are so dedicated to their teaching as you are, so that was a really lovely personal uh, uh, event that I re- that came back to me after he died last year.
0: He really was a very you know, lovely, warm, engaging person. Uh, I took a number of courses with him, classes with him, uh, but I I wasn't uh, a disciple in the, in the same way that that you were, and I was involved in working with him and putting out the English edition of that uh, Footsteps of the Kuzari book, um, and I, I experienced some of those things that you. Uh, that you that you describe as I think, you know, everybody that was within his orbit uh, did did as well. Um, but for our purposes, you know, this is the the odd nature of of uh, of running a journal. We prepare material by the time it shows up in subscribers' mailboxes. It had actually been written and edited or translated and sent to publication long before. and Sometimes it resonates very much with the moment it appears, and sometimes it's a bit disconnected. And in this way, it really came back in, in very surprising ways. There are even things that are in the essay that that you and I discussed before, it, it's not so apparent why they were there, but you know, almost as if uh, by some kind of prophetic guiding hand uh, uh, they made their way into the essay because they really, really do resonate with what the Jewish world and we here in Israel, in particular, are are experiencing. So, so what is the reader, or what can the reader potentially take away from this this essay about faith in a world of doubt uh, for our for our particular uh, for our particular experience at the moment?
1: Well, I think that uh, yes, the article is uh, Rabbi nachon Abress's faith in a world of doubts, and I think that. Uh, as you said in the opening, uh, your opening words, for a lot of people, certainly that, the shattering of the news that we started getting on pastora uh, morning uh, a few weeks ago, and as the horse not only continued but continues still today to come out more and more horrific information as more bodies are recovered and and as the number of confirmed hostages and kidnapped people goes up I don't you know no reason to rehash this here everyone knows what I'm talking about I think for some people this has been certainly a faith challenging um situation uh, whereas for many other people it's clearly been uh Something that that fit into some paradigm of faith that they work with in their personal, in their personal lives. I think the if we go back to his his triple bet about faith. So then the third part about maintaining uh, hope in redemption, and again not necessarily in some uh, far off eschatological redemption. Well, hopefully not far off eschatological redemption, but the hope even today that yes, despite how terrible things seem to be that there can be hope for a better future and that we can, you know as Rabbi Nachman would have said though it's not quoted in this essay there's no no room for despair although I've heard people recently saying what what, what does he mean I, I think there's plenty of room for despair but <laughs> but we and here it comes back to Rosenberg's opening statement faith in our time is a choice and we should need to make that choice or take that bet and without that i think we're really uh we'll fall into the pessimism of uh of an of a kafkaesque anti-hero and that's not where we want to end up that's not going to give us anything that we need at this time right. Right. i wanted to quote one statement that i also felt um it wasn't clear to me at the time when I first read the essay, before all this was happening, exactly how it fit in. But now it's so, as you said, almost prophetic to make this comment. And he says, uh, the only real uh, Satan is the one who makes Satan an ideology and divides people between the saved and the lost. Yeah. Which I think that everyone would agree that what we saw in the attack of Hamas was a satanic uh, a kind of uh, thing that's—it almost reminds me of the way that that Rosenberg describes the Holocaust, post-Holocaust theology, uh, in his book on good and evil. That he divides the Holocaust theologians between those who think that there is some explanation for the Holocaust in some rational way, and some those who think that there's not, that there's something so satanic about the evil of the Holocaust that it that any kind of exp, human explanation falls short. And the same thing. Could be said here, obviously on a smaller scale, but in uh, some kind of same intensity. So that comment, and I think when he says that people who make Satan into an ideology and divide people between the sacred, between the saved and the lost, that's the that's the ideology that says there are people who are believers and there are people who are infidels, and the infidels infidels are, uh, you know, are a lost cause, and they need to be treated accordingly, which is a, a very frightening. Reality that we just have such an intense taste of, right, right. So yeah. that's certainly one one aspect that found uh, chillingly relevant here. Right. It, it is
0: interesting. Uh, one might have anticipated, or perhaps hiding between the lines here uh, is the thought of another figure who you've written on actually in 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 our pages in tradition, and was a, a colleague and and I think friend of Rosenberg, and that's Rav Shagar. Uh, so Shigar doesn't make an appearance in the essay, but but how do these two thinkers intersect here?
1: That's interesting because I also thought that Shagar, Rav Shagar's, that's all, was kind of in between the lines here. Because he also dealt a lot in all of his writings with um faith in a situation of doubt in mo- modern or postmodernity. He was more seeing right. himself as continuing Rav Cook, Rav Cook dealt with faith in face of modernism, so his job was to deal with faith in the face faith, faith of postmodernism, but in a reality where uh, the big narrative or the idea of the truth sort of come unhinged and people feel that they're uh, floating without uh, a strong anchor, that's where faith becomes not only imperative, but also much more meaningful. That faith in a place of doubt, the faith, faith without the possibility of doubt is really... Uh, Somewhat uh, meaningless, and it's so only really in the in the place where uh, where our faith is under attack and is susceptible to doubt, and we're 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 willing to admit that we live in a world with lots of questions that we don't have good answers to. but that's the place where faith becomes really the choice of faith, and we know Rav Shagar dealt with this at, both as a child of Holocaust survivors and also as someone who in, in the Yom Kippur War was. Um, very severely injured, while his two good friends in his tank with him were both killed, yeah. and he never really recovered from that. And a lot of his theology was based, in a sense, on unraveling that existential dilemma of the uh, of, of facing of life in the face of death. And that you know, so, in the, in the bizarre world,
0: in the bizarre world in which in which we live, our our previous issue, our summer issue of tradition had a special content dedicated to the 50th anniversary of the Yom Kippur War. We thought we were exploring uh, old history, which turned out to be tragically and in a most unwelcome way, very, very relevant. And one of the very interesting essays there was authored by Zachary Truboff, who's a young scholar of Shagar's of thought about uh, trauma, about how the, his experiences in the Yom Kippur War came to shape his his thinking about trauma in in Jewish life and Jewish thought, and uh, it's, it's just so so tragically um, you know relevant and, and pertinent and, and immediate for us again that uh, together with all of the essays in that issue have been made open access because of their unfortunate timeliness. At the end of the essay, the very very end of the essay, uh, Rosenberg adds a kind of coda. Uh, he he brings a long quote from a, uh, a a Breslov text, which I'll I'll let you introduce. But he does Ooh. so by by um, discussing what he calls the eschatological verification. What he says is the test is in the result, the the proof is in the pudding, as it were. Does faith really lead to the end of days, to a to a better to a better future? Um, and then again, you know, writing at some point, you know, in the past, you know, sadly. He passed away a half a year ago. Uh, um, he, he brings a text from Rabbi, Rabbi Nosan, the disciple of mm-hmm. Rabbi Nosan's Nossan, Rabbi Likute Tfilot. So, so tell us about that little, that prayer, that, that, that very, very germane prayer to our own day.
1: Right. So that's also was, again, a, a sort of a surprise ending for this essay because it doesn't ostensibly deal with faith the faith question or the faith decision but it does in the sense that it comes back to his third wager the wager for hope and uh, and uh and a better future and a redemption and he brings from the a of rabbi natan what is usually referred to as a as a as a tfilah le shalom where rabbi natan offers a beautiful Tfilah that he composed that there be no more war no more bloodshed obviously you know, playing on uh on prophetic uh calls, but uh and clearly states, you know, it's very it's not a uh it's not a particularistic prayer for Jews to be saved from persecution or for there to be peace upon Israel, but it's a really a prayer that all the peoples in the world will understand that Hashem created us in order to be good people, to be ethical people, to help each other, to care for each other, to spread goodness and peace and love. And not to uh, do the opposite, which is so sadly what we obviously see in the world as we know it. So, to end this piece, and as it you know arrived in our mailbox, he said just now with this beautiful vision of world peace is really a very very again uh, almost hash- hashkachah pratita. This is what uh, what came out in this essay that came to us at this time because it's so much what we need to hear to. Uh, to end on such a positive note and such a hopeful note.
0: Well, that that hopeful note, the prayer for peace, the the idea that we can get to a better world by creating a better world in the in the here and now is also how he ends the section of the essay about midway through, where he explores these three bets that we, you know, which ultimately is tied up with this idea of of hopefulness, of a hope for redemption and of a hope for a better world. So So he writes the following, and I think this is a beautiful way to summarize what he's doing in the essay and why it's, you know, suddenly very meaningful to us. I am full of hope that we do not need a heavenly policeman in order to behave ethically. Still, allegorically, we believe that there is a book in the heavens in which it is written that, for example, love thy neighbor, that that's a mitzvah, and that Nazism is an abomination. The editor now would change this, but we would update it to the acts of Hamas are an abomination. Yeah. The ethical norm that obligates us is not a random whim, a social convention, or a pathological neuroses, but Torah misinai, Torah from heaven. Finally, we gamble on hope that it is possible to change reality and that there may even be meaning to human suffering. We bet that history will ultimately be corrected, that good will ultimately triumph, and that a day will come when, Machah Hashem Dima Mi'al Kol Panim, may Lord God wipe tears away from all faces.
1: Amen. Amen.